Chapter 15. After filming. Editing. Color correcting. Showing. And almost losing everything. Teach me how to burn a CD and you've got a deal. Six hours later, I would be back at the job. Kyle was there too, but I insisted Hana take some time off for having come in so many days when we were shooting. I felt guilty as I saw a stiff and aching Kyle walk past me. All the awkward camera placements and rig work left his body a mess. I probably shouldn't have begrudged him that massage. It would take a few weeks before we warmed back up to one another, as he became very quiet and secluded, but we bounced back as we always do. For going on seven years, Kyle and I have spent every weekday together in close quarters, in addition to hanging outside of work and partnering creatively across three films. The fact that we haven't had an aggressive Mexican standoff by now is a testament to our respect for one another and joy from one another's company. We had a tough time on this movie that should not go unnoticed or unexamined, but nor should the value of resiliency and willingness to engage in confrontation. And aside from Kyle Gage. My critical mistake during the shooting of Having Fun Up There was not understanding how badly I was treating my own body. I spent nine straight days standing up, hunching over, leaning, kneeling, and generally contorting my body any way I could to get the shot right. All with a heavy metal camera and rig on my right shoulder. It seriously harmed my back, and I had a hard time even getting out of bed in the morning without needing my girlfriend to pull me up. Getting up from my desk and walking around the office was pretty tough. There's a strange phenomenon that always happens during a movie shoot. You feel pretty invincible. You're working so hard, your body seems incapable of experiencing pain or hunger or sickness, right up until the day after you finish shooting, that is. Then it all hits you at once. Be wary of this. One of my biggest takeaways from having fun up there is to always do some serious stretches before shooting. Most likely, when you're done with a stretch of shooting, you'll get the flu or generally feel run down for a little while. It's normal. It's called post-traumatic stress. I had purchased a plugin for Adobe Premiere CS6 that allowed me to edit the raw files natively, and my Krypton computer could handle it. I started editing the weekend of October 13th, 2013, and had a showable rough cut the first week of November. Maybe it's not for me to say, but whatever. The doubts and fears throughout the script writing and the constraints and challenges throughout shooting had somehow yielded a great movie. Sure, it was only 65 minutes long, which I actually sensed while shooting, but that somehow made it even better. It's watchable, sharp, to the point, well-performed, beautifully shot, especially under the circumstances, and speaks to a certain sort of artist. I tossed together a trailer and showed a few friends, many of whom responded sarcastically with, Oh, great, you made my autobiography. Shooting a film can be fun, but as you've read, most of it is spent rushing around, trying to feed people, filling the car with gas, praying it doesn't break down, picking up equipment, and extinguishing fires. Almost none of which is apparent in the final film. They're just necessary measures to film people talking in interesting locations. Editing is a joyous time where all of that nonsense is behind you, and you're back to your own schedule. Editing is often likened to writing, and I think that's apt, except when you write, any and all possibilities are open, and when you edit, most production possibilities have closed. It's like writing with only a small dictionary of words at your disposal. In many ways, that's actually freeing, as you start committing to decisions out of necessity rather than because you didn't sufficiently mine your imagination. We had one small shoot scheduled after John Ryan left us, which we did after work. It was just some footage of Carla hanging out with old bandmates and cheating on Mark. John Hunt claimed that he couldn't drive to Boston after work because he can't see at night, so I recorded audio in Kyle's shot, Splinter Crew. The location was in and outside Maria's real-life apartment, and we got to know her boyfriend John a little better, as he made us delicious soft-shell tacos for dinner and for the scene. He and his drummer Derek were big, buff dudes. John was used to Maria being in student films, so much of his experience with low-budget filmmaking was amateur and unwatchable. I had already cut the first act of the movie, 
It was two weeks after we wrapped on principal photography. So I showed them, and they seemed genuinely impressed. Derek expressed his opinion first. It's, honestly, it's, and don't take this as an insult, but like, I would actually watch this, and I didn't think I would. Remember how location owners were soured on student-slash-low-budget filmmakers? Most viewers are soured on them, too, as they know there's a lot of awful films out there. If you're not making a movie with a valid budget star or studio, you will not only have a difficult time marketing your film to festivals and distributors, but you'll have a hard time getting your own friends and acquaintances to want to watch it, because they safely assume that your movie is bad. And it probably is. I'm not uncommon in that I don't think my movies are bad, so I'm motivated to get them seen. This is an automatic hurdle of ego that any low-budget filmmaker will have to overcome. You need enough ego to push past the default eye rolls you'll get when you try to show people your work, and you need to have a lack of ego to get it written and shot in the first place. That pickup shoot was on October 21st, 2013. The first rough cut of the film existed on November 11th, 2013. And I have a full-time job. I'm not looking for a medal, but I'm illustrating how eager I am to turn raw footage into edited footage. While my films are in unedited states, all I can do is think about their assembly, so I may as well use every second of free time to edit. The editing process in a nutshell. Number one, I create a different project file for every scene in the script. If scenes run into one another, like if scene 10 is the exterior and scene 11 is the interior, or two scenes share the same music overlay, I'll make just one project file for the two scenes. This movie had 52 scenes and 34 project files. Segmenting project files like this, rather than making one giant file for the whole movie, decreases the possibility that your whole sequence will become corrupt and all of your edits and work become lost. It also keeps the project a reasonable size, so they'll open, save, and respond faster. Number two, each project file contains two editing sequences. One is the video synced with the audio, and the other is the actual edit. I make my in and out points within the audio synced sequence and copy the clips into the editing sequence. So in a sense, the synced sequence becomes my bin. I try to make my bin only contain assets from the scene I'm working on, rather than importing all source footage for the entire movie unnecessarily. Number three. Most of the scenes contain multiple tracks of audio. Maybe a few lav mics, maybe a boom mic, and always the stereo mic. I leave all of them intact, but try to do a preliminary mix while I'm editing, which involves muting everything except for the active track, leveling the gain so that it falls somewhere between negative 6 and negative 12 dB, and throwing in some crossfades between takes so that the cuts don't sound sharp and clicky. John Hunt will later go in and refine this, bringing some of the stereo back out and doing a more creative design of the mix. But mixing preliminarily cuts down on how much work he's going to have, and it makes the movie far more watchable for rough cut viewers. Number four. I use temp slash copyrighted music where I know there's going to eventually be a musical cue. This helps me cut to a beat, and will later be useful in communicating the kind of tone I'm looking for from a composer or songwriter. The disadvantage to this approach is that one can get attached to the copyrighted music and be disappointed by everything that he or she attempts to replace it with, so remind yourself that it's temporary throughout the rough cut. And finally, number five. When I'm ready to make an assembly cut of the whole film, I import all of the sequences into one project and assemble each of the actual edit sequences in chronological order. I export, and in this movie's case, upload privately to YouTube to share for comments and feedback. At this stage, the film is not color corrected, which had been a major pain point of Sexually Frank and now this movie. Sexually Frank, shot by Kyle but also Dan Leach, was designed by Dan to capture as much color information as possible. He developed a color profile in the Canon 7D that would shoot flat, so that when correcting, we can get as much latitude as possible. As I described before, this is precisely the point of raw video, as we shot it. Dan had intended to color correct the film, and aside from having done a few scenes, he completely dropped the ball and failed to get far. So I taught myself Apple Color, a friendly enough but pretty clunky Apple product. 
It was not originally produced by Apple, but a company called Silicon Color that was acquired by Apple and then barely developed from there. But it cut the mustard, and I was so happy with the end color product on Sexually Frank that I went back and color corrected Abo and 10 Pounds and printed them on Blu-ray, with more special features than anyone will ever watch. Then, shocker, Apple Color was discontinued with the release of Final Cut X. So I could either try to color correct this beautiful raw video in an application that has been barely developed since the early 2000s, and that may not even support raw, or learn a modern color correction software like DaVinci Resolve. DaVinci, coincidentally, is owned by Blackmagic, the camera we very nearly shot the movie on. A few glances at Resolve, and I realized that it was too big a beast to learn without some serious practice and training. But a friend, fellow MFA grad, co-worker, and cast member of the film, Will Rogan, currently had a small career color correcting film projects in Resolve. Will's creative and career aspirations are to be a colorist, and without much to do, he offered to color correct our entire film. He was excited to get his hands on the raw. We don't pay, you know. Yeah, I know. We'd cross that bridge when we had gotten to it. In the meanwhile, I would just have to ask everyone to ignore the very flat, often very orange, color temperature of the whole film. The first person to see the whole film, who wasn't me or Nina, was my very old friend Jacob Sadik. He and Nina had just gone for a run, and they came back for a sweaty screening in the living room. When it was done, the first thing he expressed was, I've got to go to more of my dad's shows. His dad's a local musician. He got it and had almost nothing negative to say. The 65 minutes flew for him, and the conversation that followed showed me how truly reflective the film had made him about art and self-value. Whether he knows it or not, this was the first major piece of evidence that allowed me to calm down and be confident that the movie succeeded at what it set out to do. After depriving them of seeing much more than the first act, I screened a decent first cut in December to a group of core contributors. Kyle and his girlfriend Molly, Kyle's brother Ian and his girlfriend, Will, Hannah, our friend Paula, and Jeff. As we waited for the Emerson screening room to become available, Jeff and I traded a few pre-screening words. I told him that I absolutely loved this movie, which I think took him aback some, that I would be this confident so early in the post-production process. During the screening, gone was the snapping, irritable Kyle. Instead, the childlike, art-loving Kyle showed up, clearly proud and somewhat astonished at what he was seeing. Proof, for the second time, that we actually made a movie. Maybe that explains some of the stress during shooting. Surely the way it's going to turn out isn't as clear to anyone as it is to me, even to the guy shooting it. Many people on this movie chose to just trust me. I'm sure Frankie knows what he's doing after making four features. The irony there, of course, being that I don't want to be trusted so blindly, and I don't always know exactly how things are going to turn out. But I concede that I have the best sense for how the pieces will fit as we lay them down. So showing that it all gets sorted out is a thrill, especially when showing people like Kyle, who worked hard but found a lot of frustration and unrest while shooting. Our friend Paula is a highly emotional Bostonian who couldn't stifle her feelings if her life depended on it. Watching the movie with her in the room was the highlight for me, as she involuntarily shouted at the screen, gasped and cupped her mouth, or crossed her arms and got indignant. It was impacting her. Granted, most things do, but I still loved it. Every time she had an outburst, she took double the time to apologize to me, thinking that she was meant to be quiet during the screening, when I was really just looking forward to each small explosion. Jeff was quiet during the showing. His opinion was naturally the most important to me, as it was his movie before it was ever mine, and he was very generous with sharing so much of his life in the story and in the production. When it was over, he wasn't forthcoming about absolutely loving it, as I was, but he expressed that it hit on every major beat that he wanted it to. Everyone seemed to enjoy it, save for a few logic details that we cleaned up with voiceover, which isn't usually possible, but we have a lot of phone conversations in this movie that we can easily swap dialogue on. When we took the conversation outside the formal feedback circle, Jeff's heart seemed to grow three sizes, as it set in that, 
the movie isn't bad. Like, it's pretty good. And aside from Jeff Torelli. I don't know if it's just me and my annoying habit of constantly doubting myself, but it takes a long, long time for me to accept that something I have created may not have been a failure. During my MFA, I made a thesis film and was so bummed out by it, I could barely watch it during the screening. I was sure it was awful. A year later, I watched it for the first time and thought, wait, this is exactly what I wanted to make. Hey, I nailed it. This isn't to say I think my stuff is amazing, but more to say I'm so critical that it takes me time to come around. I was still in that state during the first screening, still obsessing over every word said on screen, still hearing jokes fall flat with a thud every other time, and still wondering what I had done. But I started getting it that night that we had actually made the movie we set out to make. I'm even more proud now, months later. Sure, there are things I'd change in the script, but overall, I am really, really proud of this movie. John Hunt, John Ryan, and Bonica all watch it at home. The Johns had little but nice things to say about it, and John Hunt watched it twice in one sitting. Bonica, too, watched it multiple times before hitting me with a big list of notes, most of which made good sense and that I addressed in some form. Most were very small details that I doubt anyone without a good eye, like hers, would see. If she ever wants to make films instead of or in addition to photography, I think she would excel. The major note-giving and note-implementing had taken place. I even found time to edit a 25-minute blooper reel, all of the video blogs, and develop a deluxe DVD and Blu-ray with custom menus, special features, the podcasts as commentary, and cover art. It was December. Aside from a song Johnny had to write and that little color correction thing, the film felt ready to package and ship off to festivals. When I was home for Christmas, my dad asked if his film-loving friend Norman could get a copy of the film. Norman wants to, like, watch it before it's done so he can tell you about what he thinks you should change. He likes that kind of thing. I tried to checkmate my dad. See, while I would describe my parents as smart and creative people, they don't like films with vulgarity or violence. When I made 10 pounds, they saw it for the first time on opening night and grinned and bore it best they could as the audience laughed and applauded. I remember when I shared a very good review of 10 pounds with my dad, he emailed me, Another great review for my not-so-favorite movie. Abo, though disgusting in one sense, was a relatively clean movie, so to date, that was their favorite. They have not and will not see Sexually Frank. But now, my dad was seeing Bonica's production stills and was genuinely interested. It might be relevant to mention that my dad has lost 60% of his hearing and takes in most of the world visually. When he watches movies, especially modern films, he can hardly hear the dialogue. He knows people are talking, but it's incomprehensible to him, like a loud mumble. Bonica's stills, the locations, costuming, and casting were successfully communicating our story to him visually, and it piqued his interest. I suspected that this business about Norman wanting to see it was a ruse to see it themselves. It was kind of nice that my parents had never seen Sexually Frank, because I never had to worry about what they secretly thought about it or me, and I hadn't decided if I wanted the same for this film. It certainly didn't have the content of Frank, but it had a strong amount of cursing. They asked for a DVD, which would give them an opportunity to pop it in before passing it to Norm. I asked for Norm's email so I could send him a link directly, but they claimed he didn't have email. He's a big movie fan, but doesn't have an email address? Uh, I guess he only has a work email. I don't know. Just give us a DVD. Against my better judgment, I printed a fairly developed version of what would be the final DVD, complete with menus and most of the special features. I handed it to them, they said thank you, and that was that. The next night, Nina and I were sitting in a movie theater. My phone was off. When the movie was over, I turned it back on and found a text from my mom from two hours earlier. We're watching your movie. It's great so far. So yeah, the suspected bait and switch had occurred. And now it was way past their bedtime. I irrationally stressed about their reaction until I woke up the next morning when I replied to my mom's text. What'd you think?
Two minutes later, my phone rang, and it wasn't my more liberal mom. It was Dad's cell. My stomach sank a little. Listen, uh, your movie? I, uh, I loved it. Dad went on to describe the level he related to the film, saying he found himself in that same state of life for a few years when he was young, and that it wasn't the hot setup. He described all of his favorite parts, including his love for the texture and richness of the locations. You see how, like, the ceiling is peeling in the record store? Yeah, I, I mean, I made the movie. He said he got lost in the story, forgetting that his son had anything to do with it, until Nina or I showed up as actors. He pointed out that I clearly don't drink, because in the scene where I was drinking a beer, I didn't know how to hold the bottle. The guy who played Mock, does he drink a lot in real life? He must. He had a snap to the way he held the bottle. You know that snap? This and much more praise came from my dad, who had watched the movie closely and carefully studied it. He didn't say a word about the bad language. What a pain it must have been to do all that, Frank. I was feeling pretty good, and asked my mom what she thought. I thought it looked very professional, was all she ultimately mustered. Mom and dad just aren't movie people and never have been, but when pressed, my dad seems to have a capacity for critical thinking and visual storytelling. My mom, not as much. It was Christmas and she was making a lot of crafts and gifts for family and enthusiastically showed them to me. Lovingly, I told her that they looked very professional. I understand that Norm watched the film at some point, but I never received any feedback from him. I wouldn't make a solid effort to submit to festivals until after the color correction and mix were complete, even though festivals often review and accept rough cuts of films to be completed before the screening date. The color correction shouldn't make a big enough difference to decide whether or not a festival would want to program our film. But still, I didn't want to place any needless obstacles in our way. However, Maria shared with me that, if postmarked by December 24th, the Buffalo Niagara Independent Film Festival was accepting submissions for no fee. It was December 24th, and I printed the same DVD I gave Norm. I just had to make it over to the post office before noon. It was 11am and downpouring, but I went out to get the movie in the mail. When my tire blew out. At least it didn't happen during shooting. Nina and everyone else I knew in the area were at work, except for my parents. I called my dad, who thrives at helping me when I'm having auto trouble, even if I'm only stuck in my own driveway at age 28. I think it's an old dad instinct. But more than car help, I needed a ride to the post office. He obliged, and I got it in minutes before the post office closed. It hardly felt worth it, but Jeff's and my first big filmmaking adventure was in Buffalo, so it somehow seemed fitting and worth the extra effort. Plus, getting registered on withoutabox.com, the ubiquitous online service for submitting to film festivals, gets your film posted on IMDb, and that always gives the cast and crew a little charge. It can also cause me some annoyance, as a lot of the extras and parents of extras don't understand that anyone can submit and request changes to an IMDb page. Instead, they seem to regard me as the administrator of our IMDb page, asking me to correct the way they're credited or submit things differently. Most of them were only ever part of our dumb, unpaid movie because they wanted official credits anyway, so I, I can't fault them. But before Emerson's holiday break, Will and I sat down at a color correction bay at the school, fully expecting to correct the scene or two together, establish a look, and send the work off with Will to be completed over the next several weeks. We didn't get anything done. The raw files wouldn't import into DaVinci, and some googling quickly told us that all of the footage, all 2.5 terabytes of footage, needed to be converted to a format called Cinema DNG. If I wanted to retain the original 2.5 terabytes of raw files and the new 2.5 terabytes of Cinema DNG files, that 8 terabyte RAID I bought was about to come in handy. I had backed all of the source footage up to a 4 terabyte drive, and I intended to give that to Will to correct the footage on, but now I was going to have to pick and choose what I copied to that drive. Converting the footage would be a labor-intensive process, but I'm no stranger to tedious legwork, and I had a vacation coming up. Aside from thoroughly playing Batman Arkham Origins for the Xbox, 
I spent my days using a program called Magic Raw to convert each and every file. The program was Mac only, so that $3,000 PC with all that processing? Useless in performing these conversions, as my little Core 2 Duo Mac Mini had to do all the heavy lifting, crashing and half-completing frequently. Once the footage was converted, I wanted to prep DaVinci for Will, so that all he would have to do is open DaVinci and do his stuff. But how? How do I import an EDL, editing decision list, the cut, from Premiere into DaVinci and have it reference these new Cinema DNG files? Would I have to go back to my Premiere project, swap the footage with the new files, and then import into DaVinci? I tried, but Premiere didn't understand the Cinema DNG files. Premiere didn't like Cinema DNG, DaVinci Resolve didn't like RAW. I had both, but couldn't get them to talk. Adobe makes a color correcting software called SpeedGrade, which instantly understood the RAW files I had originally edited with. I thought I might convince Will to use that program and ditch all these Cinema DNG files I had made. Will spent less than an hour with SpeedGrade and determined that it wasn't working for him. Back to the drawing board. Keep in mind that editing and color correcting Magic Lantern raw footage was a relatively new thing and few people were doing it. If you told me we were the first feature to have ever done it, I wouldn't be surprised. So online resources, at least at the time we were searching, had very little in the way of reliable workflows. But we found one video tutorial. Let me try to describe it as simply as possible. How to color correct Magic Lantern raw footage. Number one, convert all of your raw files into Cinema DNG. Number two, import all of your Cinema DNG files into a DaVinci Resolve project and save it. Number three, export low resolution proxy files with identical file names out of Resolve. For those counting at home, your original footage now exists in three different forms. Number four, edit your entire movie with these proxy files. I did not do this. I bought a $150 plugin that allowed me to edit the raw files. Now I had to go back to every single Premiere project and replace the raw files with the proxies. Number five, export an EDL of your cut as an XML file and import it into Resolve. When importing, tell Resolve to ignore file extensions, and this will make Resolve think that the files used in the EDL are actually your original raw, uncompressed Cinema DNG files and not the proxies. Number six, color correct. I imported an EDL from every Premiere project file into a giant Resolve file. Success. All I needed to do now was hand the Resolve project and all the corresponding data to Will. Eager to get moving, I decided to use the 4TB backup drive for the disk to hand Will. It was just about at capacity, because it contained many folders with all the original RAW files. But all he needed, for his purposes, were the DNG files. So I tediously went into each folder, deleted the RAW file, and copied in the Cinema DNG file from the primary 8TB RAID. Then I went to bed and let it crunch. I woke up at 2am to go to the bathroom and check the computer on the way back to bed. What I found almost caused me to throw up. I had left the computer and the drives with so many simultaneous deletions and file transfers that they freaked out and failed. Not a huge deal, I can do the more piecemeal, but the computer too had crashed and failed to boot Windows with the 4TB drive plugged in. That drive was completely corrupted and the data that resided on it was unrecoverable. But who cares? The 8TB RAID with 4 redundant drives was surely in a good state, and that had all the master data on it anyway. No. No it wasn't. It wouldn't mount. This wasn't terribly uncommon. I've had plenty of external hard drives not mount after an interrupted data transfer or after a power failure, but if you run some disk repair software on it, it almost always re-indexes and mounts again. I format my hard drives for Mac, not Windows, because inevitably some post-production work, like color correction, will have to take place on a Mac. And there's a nice piece of software called MacDrive that allows me to use Mac drives on my PC without even thinking about it. MacDrive has a repair disk function that almost always indexes and repairs disks within minutes, 
But I was 10 minutes into this, and tired as all get out, too, and it still hadn't repaired. The longer it crunched on the drive, the more I thought about the implications. If this drive turns out to be unrecoverable, and the backup drive is also unrecoverable, what's left? I can only think of one thing. The uploaded private YouTube version. We could, maybe, salvage that into a color-corrected, mixed movie, but shooting in RAW would have been a complete waste of time, energy, and money. All that extra work I had done for the DVD would be gone, and any other peripheral data for the movie would be lost forever. I was starting to seriously feel sick, as I paced around anxiously. Nina was worried, asking if I was okay, and I just started rambling in panic. Then, after 20 minutes of a stressful progress bar, the utility completed. Unable to repair disk. The data structure is corrupt. You may have to format the volume. Time slows down in a moment like that, as your brain floats out of your head and your fingertips tingle. I disconnected the RAID from the PC and connected it to my little Mac Mini, thinking that maybe the native disk utility for Mac will have better luck than Mac Drive. They had verified disk and repaired disk buttons. Maybe I can click those, I thought psychotically. As I moved the drive from one computer to another, I started thinking about data recovery services. I had always heard about recovery centers that are able to reconstruct data on damaged hard drives, but that the techniques they employ cause the service to cost thousands. It might be worth it in this case, since I couldn't exactly go back and reshoot the whole film. I saw the drive and disk utility. I clicked verify disk. After a few minutes, it identified that the RAID was broken and told me to click repair disk. I did. After a few minutes, it simply said, could not repair disk. Yeah, options were pretty much up. But then... It suddenly mounted. And there it was. All my precious data. I wanted to kiss it. But after the could not repair error, it seemed like maybe something was still off. So I clicked repair disk again, and this time everything came up rosy. Bullet. Dodged. I reconnected both drives to my PC, formatted the backup completely, and backed up everything except for the source footage again. Then, very slowly, over the next few days, I copied the cinema DNG files onto the backup drive. Once done, I handed it all over to Will, this time, to actually be color-corrected. You might think that if I handed Will my backup drive and didn't get a third drive to back it all up again, I clearly didn't learn my lesson. I guess you'd be right. When we first started on the Endeavor, Will insisted that he needed an SDI color correction monitor, a Mac Pro, a darkened room, and a color surface. After all the trauma I had just been through, his standards dropped some, but he still needed to use the school's color correction rooms, because at home he only had a laptop. This was a problem, because the facilities had limited hours that he had to share with actual tuition-paying students. He also lived an hour out from the school, and was often eager to catch his train after work, not hang around and color-correct dopey movies for hours. We started talking about what he would need, minimally, to color-correct at home. He bought his own monitor soon after, we checked out a Mac desktop from work, and I offered, but didn't deliver, $500 for anything else he might need. After a few sessions, he had the trailer. He had brought out a nice, grim, dulled quality that matched the story. He also wasn't afraid of shadows, and most of all, the embarrassing orange tinge was finally gone. I posted the trailer and got a pretty extraordinary reaction as the friends of the production and friends of friends of the production shared it a few dozen times, enthusiastically. But now I had a good problem. People wanted to see it, and we had only color-corrected the trailer. The publishing of the trailer implied that the movie was just about ready to be seen, and when people are excited about something, you want to be able to sustain their interest by announcing a screening date, or a way to get their hands on a DVD, or a festival announcement. I had received notification from none other than the Buffalo Niagara Independent Film Festival, with an acceptance letter but no screening date. It just said that the festival would take place in late April. I found it's best not to announce festival acceptance until you have a firm screening date and location. 
We had a rough cut in early November. It was mid-February, and all we had was a color-corrected trailer. Will still had to color the entire film, every single shot. I told him that if we don't have completed Blu-rays and DVDs by mid-March, we risk making festival dates. He let me know about a few other film projects he had committed to, but assured me it would happen on schedule. Among all the problems we had already had, and remembering Dan Leach falling through and coloring the last film, I held my reservations. He did, however, complete two scenes across the next week, and in turn, I transferred that $500 equipment fee I had offered, hoping it may help move things along, and hoping he put it toward home equipment, with which he might color correct future Red Cow films. 